the law really helps us understand the heart of God, who He is, who we aren't, and how far we have to go in our sanctification process. We can get pretty pharisaical about ourselves. And the law is a mirror that shows me, you know, I haven't arrived. I still need Jesus. You know what? I'm always going to need Jesus. Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. First, let me say Merry Christmas. What a wonderful time of year when we celebrate the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, who has brought salvation to God's people and who is reigning forever on the throne. To prepare your heart in this season, I want to offer you a free digital download of Jesus the Only. Visit ltw.org candid today and request your free download. Christmas is a celebration of the defining moment in redemptive history. All throughout the Old Testament, we see glimpses of Jesus and look forward to that one who is to come to deliver his people. At the cross, our sinless Savior takes upon the sin of the world. He fulfills all the requirements of the law, and by faith in Him and in His perfect sacrifice and in the payment of the penalty for our sin, we are set free from sin and death. Jesus Himself said He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. This is central to the Christian faith. One of the issues in the church is the move by some to separate ourselves from the Old Testament, forgetting that there is this cohesive narrative to Scripture. Rather than reading Scripture to understand God's plan, we cast ourselves as central characters in the Bible and focus on how the world aligns with our plans. It's important that we understand the purpose of the covenants, And so I've invited a pastor friend of mine, Zach Carden, to Candid Conversations to help us by sharing biblical insight into this topic. Zach has a Master's of Divinity from Covenant Theological Seminary and has been a pastor for 18 years. He's also got a teacher's heart and a gift for simplifying and sharing complex biblical truths. Zach, welcome to Candid Conversations. Thank you. It's good to be here. We're getting close to Christmas, and we're thinking about the coming of Christ to our world and what that means. And there are really the surface implications, but then there are the the true deep implications. And a a lot of the conversation, I think, that's happening in different churches is around this concept of covenants, Mm -hmm. old covenant, new covenant. Mm -hmm. Um, My question to you is, does it matter? And why does it matter? Uh, Can't I just have Christmas and Easter and and go on with my life? Does it matter? Yes. (laughs) Longer answer. As long as we're talking about Christmas, I think a great illustration of of the whole thing is a Christmas tree. So when Christmas comes around, you bring out all those ornaments, the ones that you've collected over a period of time. You know, some special sentimental ornaments, and you hang them on a tree. The ugly ones, and then you hang them on a tree. Um, The thing is that theology is like that Christmas tree. It gives us something to hang biblical truth on. The stories of the Bible, the memory verses that we have, what we tend to do as a as a church culture is we tend to hang things. We don't really tend to hang things on that theology. 
we have a nice Bible verse or a nice Bible story, and it means something to us, and so we, we define it by its meaning to us versus its meaning in the history of redemption. So the Christmas tree is like that history of redemption, uh, that, that theology that runs behind the Bible stories. Yeah, so you've got the kings and you've got the judges, you've got you know, David, and you've got Noah, you've got Abraham, and you've got Adam, and all that hangs on this tree, and at the top you've got the star, which is Jesus, but people are like, oh, just give me Jesus, just give me the star, right, right? and you can keep the rest of it. But without the rest of it, Jesus, redemption, the cross, none of that makes any sense. Neither do the covenants. And the new covenant really doesn't make any sense without the old covenant. Often when people think of Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, they're thinking, okay, one seems to be kind of law. The other one seems to be grace. Yeah. Um, one seems to be judgment. The other one seems to be love. How do we bring clarity to that? What are the images we should be getting? Mm, that's a lot of... There's a lot of questions there. Um, and there are a lot of illustrations that can go with that. When you're talking about law and, and gospel, there are, there are groups out there that would separate those two things and say they don't really have anything to do with one another. The problem with that is that Jesus said that the law is good. And the Bible can, tells us even in the New Testament that the law is good. The problem is that the law is deadly also. Right. The law is deadly if you're trying to justify yourself by the law, if you're trying to say, I'm going to make myself right before God, the law slays you. Mm. It tells you that you're a liar. It mm. tells you that you can't live up to uh, the standard of perfection. Right. And that takes us all the way back to the garden. You know, that takes us back to the covenant that Adam had with God, that he failed to live up to being the perfect person, the perfect man. And because he failed, we all, as his posterity fail as well. Right. So it took another Adam to come in and do what he couldn't do. I had a guy ask one time after reading a lot in the Old Testament, and he asked the question, so the Old Testament's filled with all of this killing and uh, all these horrible stories. What are we to do with that? And I just I said to him, look, by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, by the time you get to, to Malachi, you really believe God cannot save this people through a human being mm. or a nation mm. or anyone because they all fail one after the other. Even Solomon in all his wisdom had many wives and built temples to those wives' gods around the, one, the temple to the one true God. So you see over and over again, oh, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one. Because way back in Genesis 3.15, God promised there would be one who would crush the head of the serpent. Right. And so it's every generation is looking for the one, the one, the one. Here's the one who's going to do that. And they all fail, telling us that, that we needed something more than just a man. We needed the God-man. We needed Jesus to come. We needed someone who was going to really, truly crush the head of the serpent. And that's the, the comparison. But the, the covenants do is they really outline what this new covenant is going to look like, who this Redeemer is going to be. I'm thinking down the track of salvation now, and I think the question that comes up with a lot of people when they first become believers or when they're asking questions about Christianity, if Christ is the only way to salvation, mm -hmm. how did someone in the Old Testament come to salvation without his coming yet? That's a good question, because I think that people waffle on that a little bit. They say, 
Well, you know, they did the sacrifices, and that really covered over things for them temporarily. It put a little bit of patch on it. I don't think that's what it is. The The blood of, of bulls and goats and sheep and ram, the Bible is very clear on the fact that those do not do anything for our sins. What they do is they do look forward in faith to what God could do. Mm. See, Leviticus shows us what our sin deserves. Right. It deserves death. When I was a youth pastor, I'd tell my, my kids look in my group, if you went to the temple, it's not going to be this pristine place like a like a church. It was going it's going to be smelly and violent and <laughs> dried um, up blood. Dried up blood. It's yeah. it's going to be a horrible place, but it's it's putting on display what our sins deserve. Right. And then what Christ took on the cross for us. So the faith in the Old Testament, even through the, the means of grace in the Old Testament being the the sacrifices and, and, and the word and all the various you know, the Passover and, and circumcision and all those rites pointed toward the grace that we would have in Christ. And those, the, the people did that in faith right. uh, in the one who would come. Likewise, we in the New Testament, we look back on what Christ did. So through the Lord's Supper and, uh, and through the, you know, the sacraments, through the word, we look back on what Jesus did. And and if we can look back and be saved, they can look forward and be saved. Jesus is the only way. He's the way and the truth and the life for the patriarchs, as he is the way and the truth of the life for the apostles and those who came after. And Jesus said, Abraham longed to see my day, yeah. and he did. Right. And he rejoiced. Yeah. Just think about that illustration of the Christmas tree. It's, you know, it's right to have that star of Christ at the top. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the ornaments hanging on the tree, and I'm thinking... What do we do with the churches who seem to be driving a wedge between that old and new covenant? How do we as believers, wherever we are in our walk, how do we discern what is right in that specific context? Well, first of all, let me say about churches that are, that are teaching this, I think they don't know what they don't know in some cases. And I know that sounds fairly arrogant. I, I don't mean it to sound that way. I think a lot of times we can get caught up on the the you know the, the principles, the five principles, the ten steps. We can be so zealous to try to win a people that have been pushed away by uh, a culture that has kind of wielded the Bible more as a battle axe rather than a scalpel that cuts away you know that which is infecting our hearts. And I understand their motivations. I don't think that throwing the Old Testament out is the way to do the Old Covenant out, because the New Covenant cannot be understood without the Old Covenant. Say you start with Jesus and the resurrection, it means nothing apart from what came before. It gives us the very context of the resurrection. The New Covenant, I mean, if you read Jeremiah 31 through 34, that covenant is made with the houses of Judah and Israel. So we act like this is a brand new thing that just God just dropped in, in, as if everything that came before were his failed attempts. Experiment one, two, three, four, five, and six didn't work. Right. Oh, dear. I guess I'm going to have to bring Jesus. That's not it at all. That's this chaotic, scattered view yeah. of redemption yeah. when, in fact, he had a plan from the very beginning, and it all weaves together. Mm. And the more we read Galatians and the more we read our Old Testament, the more we see even in Isaiah, he's calling the nations to himself. Hmm. In Galatians, he's talking about the covenant with Abraham, yeah. which is for us. Paul talks in Romans about the ingrafting of the Gentiles into that 
biblical community. Can you walk us through a little bit of that imagery? So what do we do with what the Jews had and now what the church has today? Okay. People knew who God was. Adam, Eve, they knew who God was. Over the years, that knowledge of God began to get lost, and man corrupted that knowledge of God. But there was a faithful line, and that line came through a family. that came through the line of Seth and those who came after. And you can trace that covenant line through the genealogies. People ask, why are these things here? Why are these genealogies here? To trace that covenant line of faithfulness through family. Well, that family becomes a nation after Abraham. And then that nation bears, bears witness to who God is in that region. God puts them square in the middle of the known world. So people who travel through, they see their bizarre customs. Why, you know, why are they doing this? Why do they do that? And they're supposed to testify to God and who he is. Well, they ended up going after to false gods and wanting to be like the nations around them. Right. But that nation eventually brought us Christ. And through Christ, we go back and that nation expands. And so what, what he's doing is he's, he's offering to bring the Gentiles in to that world, into that salvation, and into that covenant. That's why the new covenant is made with, with Judah and Israel. He's saying, okay, bring the Gentiles in. He didn't say, stop with the, the, the Jews. He's saying, I'm opening my, my household. My people, my chosen people are no longer just relegated to a country and ethnicity, mm. my people are going to be from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and so I'm bringing them into the covenant. That's what Galatians really is talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, I've heard you use the illustration of a Super Bowl ad. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you can kind of paint a little bit of that picture for us. In a way, I'm trying to get you to to, to show us the picture of what it is that Christ is actually ushering in. Mm-hmm. What, what is that? You know, we, we, we kind of have these strange yeah. views of how God relates to us. Right. The covenant system just seems strange because mm-hmm. it's, it's through blood. It, right. it feels very Old Testament, it does. you know, to use that terminology. Yeah. But what is it, the picture that we're actually should be, uh, you know, f- f- at the forefront of our minds when we think about this? Well, that particular ad, I've, I've gone trying to find it, trying to find it, trying to find it. I don't even know what car company it's for. We probably couldn't mention that anyway. So there's this truck, and uh, it opens up, and this, this, you see this guy go picking up this old truck with his new truck. And he hauls this old truck to a barn, and then you see a lot of restoration work being done. Um, you see the sparks flying from the welding torch and all of that. And then at the end of this commercial, you see the man bringing in this older man, and it's his father. And the father says, that looks like my old truck. And the son says, it is. And to me, that was such a beautiful illustration of what Jesus came to do. Here's this wrecked creation, wrecked by our sin, that, that Jesus came into, stepped into our world, refused to abandon, and he restored. And he begins that restoration in us through faith. That's the first step. That's the, f- this, the, the, the death that is overcome is the second death, which is separation from God. He, re- he brings us in and restores that. And we're looking forward to that second advent, that second coming of Jesus, where death and pain and sickness are all just trampled under his feet and that we live with him for eternity. So that's the big scope 
of redemption, the one who would come, who would suffer, die, um, be resurrected, and then draw a people to himself, restoring God's creation to its, its, its pre-fall glory. What do we do with the law? You know, we, we, we know Christ came to fulfill the law, but what does that even mean? Yeah. So the law in itself is a reflection of who God is. So it can't be bad. It is a reflection of his heart. Now, some people are thinking about those old, weird Old Testament laws, which really are to set apart a people. Right. I'm not talking about that. We, we know that there's moral, civil, and ceremonial law. We know that, that, that the civil law expired with the, the kingdom of Israel. We know that uh, ceremonial law expired because it, it had a purpose, and it was to set a people apart. And then you know, the dietary part, law was a part of that. Right. And, and Jesus abrogated that through telling Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat, don't call anything uh, unclean that I've called clean. But then we get down to the moral law. We get down to some of that. And we do want to say, oh, well, Old Testament law is Old Testament law, but you know, and if it's not repeated in the New Testament, then it's not law. I, don't, I think that could be faulty. Mm-hmm. Um, there are three uses of the law, according to, to most theologians. And the first use of the law would be uh, to restrain sin in society. Mm-hmm. So it, it gives us a, a kind of a moral compass you see in the Noahic Covenant that he instituted, God instituted uh, a capital punishment there via the government uh, or that the government would restrain wickedness. And Paul talks about the government bears a sword for a reason. You should pray for it. And they restrain a societal wickedness. Otherwise, we would spiral out of control. So the second use of the law would be... Uh, to be a steward that leads me to Christ. So it helps me understand that I can't and that he can, that, the, that Jesus can live up to the law where I can't. So it condemns me and it brings me to my knees. Right. But once it's brought me to my knees in repentance, the law no longer condemns me in Christ because Christ was the second Adam who lived up to the law. But what does the law do for me now in Christ? Well, I would be remiss if I didn't say that the whole purpose of the, of the New Covenant, what the New Covenant language talking about writing the law upon our hearts, giving us a new heart, that's the language of the New Covenant. That is, that is regeneration, which is done by the Holy Spirit. And he is the one. I think he is the essential component that most people are leaving out these days when they talk about the New Covenant. Because he will then begin to change us, and more and more that sin in us is mortified. And the law then becomes a lamp and a guide, and it shows us what God is like and what he requires of us. Mm. And so you see some people who, who pull from that Old Testament law and want to talk about some things societally, and then they reject other things societally. But you can't do that. I mean, the Old Testament law has principles, uh, as the Westminster Confession puts it, the, sun, the various or the sundry uh, principles of the Old Testament uh, are now the general equitable principles of that are extracted and are useful for the believer. So overall, it re- the, the law really helps us understand the heart of God, who he is, who we aren't, and how far we have to go in our sanctification process. Because we can get pretty pharisaical about ourselves. And the law is a mirror that shows me, you know, I haven't arrived. I, I still need Jesus. You know what? I'm always going to need Jesus. Yeah. But to jettison the law is really jettisoning and getting rid of 
that which helps me in my walk with Christ, as long as I'm not depending on the law for my justification. Right. I can use it for my sanctification. Mm. When we think about Old Testament, Old Covenants, there are multiple covenants, right, that are taking place. Can you walk us through the, some of those covenants and, and what it is that they are showing to mm-hmm. the church age believer, to us yeah. today? Absolutely. Um, we talked a lot about the Adamic covenant, the covenant with Adam. Uh, the covenant with Adam, he was given a choice between the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the, the tree of life. And he chose that which would make him like God. And he wanted to be like God. He wanted to be his own God. And that's our problem. We want to be our own God. Mm. We don't want God in the picture. We want things to center around ourselves. So God barred the way to the tree of life. But then he gave the promise through the, the, the proto-evangelion, is what they call it in theology, Genesis 3.15, that one would come to crush the head of the serpent. Mm. Um, he will crush his head. The serpent would bruise his heel. So that gives us a picture of a Messiah to come, you know, fast forward to the Noahic Covenant, and you see that, that here's this deluge, the, the deluge is the wrath of God being poured out on the, on the earth. The only people who were saved from that are Noah and his family, his sons and their wives. And that ark is a picture, it's a very, very picture of being in Christ. And that's what, what that covenant is, is just really showing us, that, uh, God hangs his battle bow in the, in the air. When we think about a rainbow, it's the overturned bow. And that bow is now not pointing downward. It's pointed upward. He's going to bear mm. uh, the wrath. Christ is going to bear the wrath mm. uh, for our sins. That ark is taking the full-on punishment mm. uh, that was meant for us so that inside we may dwell secure. Mm. You know, fast forward to the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant with Abraham showed us that he was going to have a people that we're, he was going to have a nation, and he was going to make them um, innumerable. Uh, he, he told them his, his children would be more innumerable than the dust of the earth, the sand of the seashore, and the stars of the sky. And in trying to count them, we would lose track. But that's not impossible for God, and God is the one who does the impossible. So Abraham, here he is without an heir, and he's been given this promise. Mm-hmm. And Isaac is the first fulfillment of that. And the nation of Israel is the first fulfillment of that. But Paul tells us in Galatians that Christ is the seed. Right, singular. Singular. Mm-hmm. He's the seed. Mm-hmm. Not everybody in Israel, but he is the Israel of God. He is the seed. Mm-hmm. And that in him, when we believe, we become children of God. Fast forward to the, the Mosaic Covenant. And most people would think, well, whoa, the law. Oh, my goodness. How is the law going to show us anything about Christ? But when you read about the scapegoat, when you read about the sacrifices, when you read about the Passover, this rich imagery of, I need a substitute. I need someone who's going to be in my stead. I know I deserve Mm. death, hell, Mm. and judgment because that is my rebellious heart Mm. in God's sight. But what Jesus did is he took all those things for us. Mm. And even in the law of Moses, it's this beautiful picture of, of, of what God is going to do for us in Christ. Mm. And Moses, as that mediator of that, that old covenant, points to Jesus as the mediator of the new. Mm. Fast forward again to the Davidic covenant, and you've got a promise to David that, that there will never fail to be one who sits on the throne of David. David was a man after God's own heart. 
And the contrast there is that the, the, the people wanted a king. It wasn't that God wasn't going to bring him a king. I disagree with people that say that. You look back at Hannah's prayer. You look back at uh, the promises made uh, by Jacob saying that Judah will have, the scepter will, will come to Judah. Right. And you see that there would be a king. But the problem was the people wanted a king like the nations. Not a king because the, the rest of the nations have a king. They wanted a king who was strong and bold and bad and brave and tough guy, just like the nations. And in contrast, Samuel goes looking for that king in Jesse's household and still looking for that. Even he's looking for that big, bad, tough guy. And God says, no, it's this guy, the the littlest guy, Hmm. the shepherd boy, because he has my heart. Hmm. Which ultimately points to the one who would perfectly display the heart of God. David failed. But Jesus doesn't fail to display the heart of God, which brings us right down to the New yeah, Covenant. Yeah. And the New Covenant is, what, what, how, do, how do we describe it? How do we put it into terminology? Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 is a great place to start. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 29. Those are some good references to look up. But in that, they talk, it talks about the fundamental problem is that we don't obey the Lord. And so his promise is, I'm going to write, I'm going to put this law in your heart. And even Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 6, talks about how they have become a, a basically proof of the new covenant hmm. and their ministry is valid because they are living out the fruit of the Spirit, the, real, the new covenant reality. Hmm. And so that shows that the law has been written on the tablets of their heart. So it is the Holy Spirit indwelling us, changing us, making us able to more and more obey that which Christ gives us, which we couldn't do before we're, we're redeemed, before we are regenerate. For someone who's not familiar with this terminology, how do we define a covenant? What is a covenant? Well, the, I used to teach kids, too, and uh, I still have the, the, the catechism in my head. What is a covenant? It's a relationship that God establishes with us and guarantees by his word. And I can't say it any simpler than that. It's, it's an agreement. But in that agreement, God shows us something of his nature. And throughout those covenants, he shows us what he's like. Um, I think one of the, the coolest illustrations of this had happened to me when I was being installed or I was being given a charge in my, um, as I was being ordained in you know, uh, the whole process. The ministers gather together and they give you a charge. And so I was being... Uh, set apart, and there was a minister in our in our group who, well known, well beloved. Well, his his son was also being brought in, so there's there's this intense emotion. Hmm. He's giving this charge hmm. to his son, and he's weeping, hmm. and seeing the fulfillment of of the promises of God in, in his son's life. And he leans over to me and says, "Zach, I don't know you well, but I want to extend you to you the same love." And I just leaned in and said, I am happy to be caught up between, in the love between a, in a father and a son. Hmm. The eternal covenant is between God the Father and God the Son, and we have the blessing and the benefit of being caught up in that. Hmm. It's no, it makes us no lesser of people. It makes us great to be sandwiched in between that love between God the Father and God the Son, hmm. which is bound together by the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Hmm. I think it's so important that we understand the depth and the richness uh, of what's being um, conveyed through these covenants. As we think about Christmas, as we think about that coming of Christ, we need that 
whole picture because that whole picture, it fills us with such love and gratitude and we don't want it to be cheap. We want that full picture. You know, we, we talked about this earlier, but yeah. like if Christianity is a relationship, then we want to know the one who has loved us. You know, I'm teaching through First John right now and we're thinking about the only way that we love is because he first loved us. And I think if that's the case, then, you know, we need to just just as you would get to know your spouse, right? You don't marry a, a woman or man and then just sort of not talk to them. Right. You want to know every detail of who they are, their being, their character. And I feel like that's what this theological framework does for us. I think some people hear the word theological framework and they sort of start tuning into some oh, other channels. Academic and <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's just buzz. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, it has a richness. It gives you appreciation. Um, I think it gives you framework for the way that you view your whole life, the mm-hmm. way that you see um, interactions with people in the church, with your friends, yeah. with your relatives, with, you know, and, you know, obviously heading into a season of spending a lot of time with relatives, mm-hmm. this is massive. Mm-hmm. Um, because now we're, and we've talked about this before on this podcast, but we're getting a, a, a biblical lens on our eyes that's helping us to see through those eyes of uh, redemptive historical. Um, you know, what's taking place in our world, even the way that we consume news and, and, and gather information, it's, it just it brings such a, a level of clarity and understanding. Even when there are times when we don't understand, there are what you've talked about. We understand the character of our God, mm-hmm. and we can stand firm on those things and have those assurances so that even when things may seem uncertain, when we're having doubts and fears and those things creep up, we can kind of put them to rest because we we know who we believe uh, and we know that he is able to do whatever he is doing and that he is sovereign and that he's in control. Um, just rest confident in that. And, and in that, get to know your Savior. Get to know Jesus. And the only way to do that is by studying his word, reading his scriptures, understanding what it is that he's saying to you. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a friend, leave a review, and subscribe. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit ltw.org candid to connect with these pages, share your questions with me, and get this week's free download and prepare your heart for Christmas. I'm Jonathan Youssef, and we'll see you next week.